0: Hi, and welcome to Talking With Cancer. I'm Katie, and I'm here to give you an honest, real, and even funny outlook on living with cancer. There is no one way to do cancer, and I've decided to share my story to help and inspire others, as well as raise awareness. At age 43, I was diagnosed with a rare type of thyroid cancer known as hobnail in February 2022, having never had any health issues previously. I was fit and well and took pretty good care of myself, but despite that, I got a diagnosis and I am on a long-term treatment plan. On this podcast, I will be sharing my progress regularly and I often speak to amazing guests who've been impacted by cancer in some way. I really hope you enjoy listening and if you do, then please rate, review, follow and recommend the pod. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to Talking with Cancer. Today, I interview a dietitian. That's not a nutritionist, that's a dietitian. Gosh, you know, it's interesting. I learned a lot from this interview, but also, I actually did a one to one session with my guest, Alistair. And he looked at my diet over about three days and we basically sat for an hour over Zoom, talked through my diet, talked through some of the things that I've been feeling, some of the side effects from the drug and basically what's been going on for me physically. And the interesting thing for me was that he pointed out I really wasn't having enough protein in my diet And I was having a lot of fiber, too much fiber that was kind of causing quite a lot of bloating. So he suggested as well, introducing some more white carbs. And I have to say, it's made a real difference. So, yeah, the experience I had with him professionally as a dietitian was really good, really insightful. Even though I know quite a lot about diet and nutrition, it was just really helpful to have his view and his perspective on that side of things. So that was great, and interviewing him was great. We connected on Instagram. Alistair himself was diagnosed with cancer in 2019, and, you know, he's been going through a really rough ride, lots and lots of treatment, just kind of trying to get through it. I know one of the side effects that he gets from the cancer the cancer metastasized to his brain as well as other areas in his body. So he gets these seizures and I know quite recently he's had a few. So I was really grateful to Alistair for chatting to me, particularly, I know, you know, it's not been the easiest time for him and I think it was really brave and really kind and generous of him to take the time to chat to me for this interview. So I hope you find it interesting and informative. And I'm going to play that out for you now.
1: It was lovely to finally meet you, because I know that you get treated at the Royal Marsden, which is where I get treated. So we probably crossed paths and not even known it. Um, I know. So it's that's so possible, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah.
0: Next time, we'll have to try and diarise. <laughs> diarise so that we're there at the same time. Yeah. <laughs>
1: I'm not sure patients are supposed to synchronize. (gasps) No, I'm there
0: next Tuesday for radiotherapy (laughs) if you happen to be around. (laughs) Oh, wow, I'm
1: getting some
0: scans. And actually when we connected, I guess I wasn't entirely clear because I knew that you were a dietitian. I kind of thought, oh, I know about nutrition and dietitian and I've had a nutrition before. And actually I have used your services, which very good, I'll, I'll add but it's different. Can you explain the difference between a nutrition and dietitian, please?
1: Yeah, I'll do my best. So when you want to become a dietitian, you have to train by going to university and usually doing a a bachelor's and a master's. But I think I was lucky with the University of Nottingham because I was able to do my course in four years. And that course includes all the work on nutrition, but you also learn to become, to an extent, a medical healthcare professional, because we have to learn about the, obviously the diet, but also the medications, we have to learn about the type of procedures and things that are going ahead. And we focus a lot on working in the hospital environment, rather than just Talking about nutrition. We have to do things like placements as well. I had to do three placements. They varied at different places in the country. I did my placements at Doncaster. Basically, instead of getting summer holidays, we get to do a placement instead. So, Doncaster, Rotherham, and then Northampton. So, kind of spread around in different places. It was nice to get a different experience of different environments and different clientele around the country Did you
0: decide the area you wanted to specialize in after that first job so
1: I fell quite naturally into working with weight loss it's a huge area in the UK in the world I worked initially with just doing weight loss clinics but I found that there was also the opportunity to learn bariatrics at Chelsea and Westminster Hospital. And bariatrics is about weight loss surgery and you have to work with what we call an MDT. So an MDT is a multidisciplinary team and it's full of all the different specialities that you need to help in that area. So you've got psychologists, Most importantly, you've got the dieticians, you've got endocrinologists who look at what's going on in terms of hormones and bloods, and whether there are medications that can assist with changing what's going on in the body. You've even got the surgeons getting people ready a year, well, years before they can ever have the surgery because it's the process that takes so long, Mm. I found that that was one of the big areas that I got interested in.
0: Why were you drawn to that area specifically then?
1: I found it rewarding because when you have a weight loss patient and they are desperate to do nearly anything, going to the points of considering these surgeries, which are, you know, uh, life-risking surgeries, When they finally get some results and a year and a half later they've lost, you know, we're talking about something like 15 kilograms or so, and sometimes it can be up to 30, it has to be done safely, being regularly reviewed with a dietitian or the MDT team. It's not that you form a friendship or a bond, but you can understand that you feel like you're working with these people to achieve something that they wouldn't have been able to
0: without Mm, you it's a real collaboration isn't it
1: and it is very rewarding Mm. I find yeah
0: I mean we talked a little bit off pod about I interviewed Dr Anisha Patel who had bowel cancer and she talked in the interview about you know she knew the realities of what that meant and it was much more scary for her in your case having worked in hospitals and How much work did you do with cancer patients and how much has your own cancer diagnosis changed, you know, your relationship with food and diet?
1: So we probably chatted about this previously. I feel like my cancer has been a little bit different than most people would be when they get their diagnosis. I remember it very, very clearly. I saw it as a challenge. The thoughts going through my head that I was told, you know, you've got a necrotic lymph node sitting in your abdomen It spread to your liver both lungs and your brain I thought first who's going to look after my parents and my girlfriend (laughs) and after that I thought I have to beat this I'm young
0: how old were you at the time
1: 29 yeah
0: yeah
1: I'm young exercise is my thing um and most people who found out I was diagnosed said, but you're one of the healthiest people I know. And you're a dietitian as well. Like, how can this happen to you? But all I could say to them was, look, leave it with me. I'm going to have a very, very good go at beating this.
0: Leave it with me, oh, Alistair.
1: By the book. <laughs> and that's what I've done. I've just practiced what I've preached in terms of working with my patients. Because I actually <laughs> ran a cancer ward at one of my other hospitals at the Wellington Hospital I was in charge of a cancer ward so I was looking after bowel cancer patients pancreatic cancer patients some relatively difficult cases in the private sector loved working with them and loved achieving some good things and bad things with those patients it's always the case Uh, yeah as I said saw it as a challenge and still to this day I just have to keep using what knowledge I have and what mentality that I have. Absolutely. Because
0: Sometimes you've got to dig really deep, but, yeah. Yeah. You've got the tools, right?
1: Yeah, I've got the tools. Like, you're absolutely right when you say that, because I had the experience, had the insight, and all I need to do really to get through this is just rely on science, research, and advancements to get me... The right treatment and i think we're going to get there eventually
0: this is what i'm holding out for too you know yeah. like there's amazing research there's stuff happening all the time every day with treatment so you just gotta hang in there the miracle drug is out there yeah with the work that you did with the cancer patients was there ever like a common theme that you could say okay everyone's different and it's varied but here's the one thing because like when you and I had, when we did work together, one of the things you said to me was like, when you have an illness, what we don't want is weight loss. So it's really important for you to maintain weight. That was really interesting for me. Is that something that kind of ran through in all your work? Can you just talk a bit about that?
1: I think what you're asking me is if there is a common theme, you know, we were talking about making sure that, you know, things like protein, things like maintaining your strength, essentially. I think taking it all back, what's important when a dietitian gets involved with a patient is that we we look at them individually. We're not comparing them to any other patient. We're trying to be as holistic around their case and adapt to whatever is going on with them. Because in cancer, we are specifically talking about cancer now, aren't we? Yes. You really want to make sure that you are doing the right thing now the kind of rule that's come up with me i've always said this from the the get-go is that your muscle mass is a store it's like having money in the bank now if you lose your muscle mass through maybe trying a weight loss diet or trying a no sugar diet or things like that then the result is going to be weight loss which means you become weaker which means you might not be able to tolerate specific levels of drugs specific treatments and that puts you at a disadvantage because you need to be able to take whatever bombardment and cancer treatments are going to give you mm. and it's something that i feel particularly strongly about because i feel that i've had to do it myself going through the process if i hadn't maintained my weight and particularly my muscle mass i don't know if i would have been able to get through three and a half years of constant treatment mm. i've never really got breaks and every time i get a little bit of time off i'm Back in the gym or at least begging to go back into the gym and they're like okay it's safe or no you can't because if you raise your blood pressure you might cause a bleed in your brain and I was like okay I'll take it easy I'll take a break um <laughs> it is basically that's my is it pet peeve mm. is that what I mm. want to be calling it and you know I, I have had patients in the past where they have read you know I need to be avoiding all carbohydrates or I want to follow this book of a inspirational person that managed to beat off their cancer by, you know, going and living in Thailand for a while and taking it easy. And unfortunately, it all comes down to this word that we use all the time as dieticians. And it's, it's misinformation, things that are almost miracles mm. that give people that hope to to try and achieve something that maybe isn't completely realistic.
0: Yeah. it's Again, this is something I talk about a lot. I interview someone who is a healer, who meditated a brain tumour away. Now, the scientific world would roll their eyes at that. And I think this is the thing. Like, your world is medical and it's science. Yeah, you know, someone of the other extreme might argue going to Thailand and sitting on a rock for two months, you know. But what I understand is that there's a lot out there which is misinformation. And what it's doing is kind of exploiting a vulnerable community of people who have cancer and want to beat it and want to get rid of it and want to heal. So they will try any means possible what i see is that that is really sad and it's really wrong it's really exploitative but i do think you know there are ways that you can integrate and you can be holistic and you do have a choice but you have to be mindful and you have to be um you have to make educated choices about yeah.
1: these things and you have to take into account that there are so many things going on with a patient in terms of the medications that they're on all those different medications being given at all those different times they break down at different rates and they cause different gastro symptoms that you've got going to toilet in the middle of the night you've got often diarrhoea, and you can have skin conditions, all, all sorts of things going on. And that's just one factor. Whereas, you know, people having nausea and what else? There's,
0: I mean, there's so much toxicity so in much, these things, you know, so and much. what's really interesting yeah. is that one drug can do an array of those things. So like my treatment can give mouth ulcers, joint, these are the things I've had, joint pain, yep. bloating, I think my cough has been, it was one of the side effects, like very different areas. You'd kind of think it's going to all be in one area. So yeah, like you say, when you think about like what's in these drugs, you know, I'm always concerned about my kidneys and my liver and how is that functioning with all of these drugs I take?
1: I never complained really about all the things I had to put up with, but I know that when I was doing my stem cell transplant with high dose chemo, I had the symptom of mouth ulcers, and that was the worst symptom. You, didn't
0: you have 300 mouth ulcers or something?
1: Oh, no, no. So oh, no, that was
0: someone else. That was another cancer patient I spoke to, had 300.
1: Yeah, no, so um, it might be that I've had about nearly 300 infusions of chemo, but we won't talk about that, but... In terms of mouth ulcers, I've wished I knew how many I had because I felt like I had them everywhere. And this is the thing. When you have mouth ulcers, it's not just the mouth. It goes throughout the whole digestive system. It affects how you absorb nutrition. It affects what kind of symptoms you've got going on. And yes, it have an impact on eating, going to toilet, everything. So
0: It's worse when you brush your teeth with mint toothpaste. Well, you're in pain. Thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Oh. yeah.
0: I am interested in some myth busting. Are you ready for this?
1: Oh, yeah. No, this is what i prepared for. <laughs> oh,
0: yay! I'm going to yeah. throw a food group at you. Yeah. I want you to bust the myth. I'll do my best. OK, dairy. Go.
1: Right. So interestingly, if we're talking about dairy, a lot of people in the past, let's say decade, maybe a little bit more than a decade, have been going on to all these different alternative milks. Now, there are many, you know, ranging from coconut milk to almond milk to rice milk to soya milk.
0: Oh, cashew, there's all, there's, yeah. there's hundreds.
1: Yeah. From a dietitian's perspective, there are only a very few that stand up to being a good milk because. What you want or what we want to recommend people is to get the best nutrition from the milk that they are having. Now, when it comes to dairy, as you said, the first thing I think of is a cow, moo, right? So (laughs) the thing about dairy is that you can have dairy intolerance, so cow's milk intolerance. And we're not talking about... Allergy. We're not talking about cow's milk allergy, which tends to be identified at a very, very young age from a baby, but we're, we're talking about not cow's milk intolerance, but lactose intolerance.
0: Yeah, that's the big buzzword, isn't it?
1: Yes, because actually a huge amount of the world population, about 65%, is lactose intolerant. Now, this tends to be the Asian population, definitely the sub-Saharan afro-caribbean populations and also uh, south america you can type this into it's well-known science and if you type it into you know the internet search search engine of your choice you'll see the maps all laid out and you'll see that you know whilst kind of there are as i said specific areas that are very very well known it is spread out across the world but in the uk it's very mixed because you know, we have a, a very mixed culture population. It is very, very interesting because these people can't tolerate the milk as well as the other people. And this is due to essentially um mammalian development mm. over our development.
0: And what food yeah. groups they've got access to and how their yeah. body can tolerate them.
1: And milk gets broken down by enzymes. Basically, the the lactose is that enzyme which breaks it down into simpler sugars. Now, as we get older, when we are a child, we have a production of those enzymes. But as we get older, if we have periods of time where we're not having milk for a long time, we actually lose the ability to produce those enzymes as efficiently as we previously did. So it's almost as if if you want to continue to get the, the quality nutrition from milk that is you know good levels of protein whey protein that is known to digest very well and and give you good amino acids, which are type of protein building blocks that are great for maintaining muscle mass and things like that, then cow's milk is obviously the first one you want to try and consider but to cut a long story short, the next best milks are going to be things like soya milk, which often is, gets a bad rep. But basically,
0: Benedict- dairy is good. If you really can't tolerate it, soya is, is also good.
1: Yeah, so soya is great. If you look at the packages, you'll see that you know, they've had to be supplemented with vitamin B, with calcium often.
0: Oh, so if they supplement it in the ingredients, it means it's not actually in the product itself. Yeah. Interesting.
1: And, you know, in things like almond milk, (laughs) I'm I'm not sure how true this is, but I've read a lot of articles that state it, but there's only about a handful, maybe less, of almonds in a bottle of almond milk. The rest is simply water.
0: Yeah. Okay. next food group, gluten.
1: Gluten. So, Gluten, another thing that's just become extremely fashionable to cut out of your diet, and I don't really know why, because gluten is a, a protein, and when people react to gluten, they tend to get diagnosed with something called celiac disease, and that is an autoimmune disease. So that is the body attacking itself. Now, this protein, gluten, is in barley, wheat, rye. Uh, There are some oat products that will have it in as well, and that's just due to contamination from being in the same factories and producing places, and that contamination happens. But if you have celiac disease, this autoimmune disease, and gluten enters your digestive system, what it will tend to do is cause inflammation. Now, to do the best description I can do, which I've always had to do with my clients, um, (laughs) in our gut lining, we've got these things called villi, and they're almost like fingertips. Now, when we get inflammation from gluten being present in our digestive system, we're talking about our small bowel here, it causes this inflammation to close up And then what you've lost is you've lost a load of surface area and you've lost a load of absorption. And that means that the whole gut environment changes. You tend to get people going, diarrhea, weight loss, awful kind of symptoms because they are malabsorbing food. And this inflammation can actually be very harmful in terms of One, weight loss, but it can really increase rates of cancer from the amount of inflammation that is happening and the type of inflammation that is happening. So, in terms of if we think somebody has gluten intolerance, we get them to do a test and that has to be done specifically with a gastroenterologist. The only bad side to the test is that in order to get a positive result, they have to be eating gluten at the time of when they have the test. And they have to be doing it for about six weeks. Oh, Yeah.
0: That's awful, especially if you're really young. I know my friend's baby had it, and she couldn't get it diagnosed for months. Yeah. And then finally she did. She was only small.
1: I know. And when being investigated for gluten, it is a little bit scary because if you are actually gluten intolerant, you do have to cut out quite a few things. There are plenty of things that you can eat, and that's why there are dietitians to help people, give them resources on all the different things that they can eat. And
0: Yeah, because sometimes gluten-free stuff is a bit over-processed, isn't it? So you've got to kind of know your products, know your brands.
1: I'll tell you what, we tend to not recommend gluten-free products. They're often... A little bit processed in themselves, yeah. and they can be a little bit like eating sand. Sometimes is what has been used to describe them. <laughs>
0: it's a bit like we all thought low-fat products was a great alternative, but actually they're just full of sugar, right? So yeah,
1: there's that comparison.
0: Speaking of sugar, uh huh. That's the next food group. What's your yes. take on sugar?
1: Well, this gets a, a spotlight view really because um, it's always been the case with cancer that there is this relationship that if you eat too much sugar or if you're eating sugar it's going to be fueling cancer growth because eating sugar fuels the growth of cells all this kind of stuff it's all confused and if you're not a scientific person who wants to read into it and, and learn about it of course you're going to form you know your opinion or an assumption based on maybe something that an article has prompted in your head. So let's go all the way back to the 50s. I think a scientist called Warburg was doing some studies on how the cell interacts. And he was using glucose or sugar, blood sugar, showing how the cell was using energy from the sugar to promote its growth or along those lines now this blew up in the the science world and it was believed that this is the reason why it happens but it's definitely not the way that sugar is used in our body is so much more complicated than that we don't just eat sugar we eat fats we eat protein we eat, um, minerals and vitamins that all interact in a very specific way and i tend to try and talk about carbs at the same time as sugar simply because sugar is the most basic type of carbohydrate there is obviously people see sugar as a mass of white powder And a carb is a piece of bread or a potato or something starchy. But ultimately, as a dietitian, we often see them together as one group. Going back to what we were talking about, if we stop eating glucose or sugar, which is pretty much impossible, uh, and the reason being is because your body will break down your protein stores, your muscle stores, in order to make sugar and it's called gluconeogenesis is the right answer i believe and this happens from muscle breakdown um and essentially you can try and stop your body using sugar to to power your every cell in your body because every cell in your body requires glucose to to function you will never be able to beat it so Please, everyone, stop trying to by cutting out sugar. Now, when we talk about the types of sugar that you should be eating, yes, we don't want you having artificial sugars, sugars that are added to foods, you know, like...
0: Don't go and buy a packet of Haribo and sherbet dips, basically. That's not what you mean when you say don't cut out sugar.
1: Yeah, so those things like sweets and confectionery um, and... Just you know, just general sugar, that granulated sugar that you get in a huge one kilogram bag, that's what we call added sugars. And added sugars, it's just a, a load of powder or you know gelatin mixed in with sweets that essentially is non-nutritive. And that means that you're just simply getting a sugar spike which there is a small amount of evidence that can be a negative effect with cancer uh, a loose kind of a study at the moment i wouldn't take me word for word verbatim on it but if you are constantly having sugar spikes throughout the day through having chocolate bars and sweets and things like that that can potentially have a negative impact on how your cancer grows if it is growing as i said it's not something i can confidently say so i won't but we want you to be getting nutritive sugars and those tend to come from things like fruit even a tiny bit in things like veg and that's the preference of where we want to get and the reason they're nutritive is because they come with a lot of other good things they come with the vitamins the minerals They come from other places that are going to, you know, you rather than just put on weight, increase risks of diabetes, increase risks of obesity. And all these things, unfortunately, also increase the risk of cancer, ultimately, because obesity is a huge driver of the development of cancer. Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. it's all connected.
0: Yeah. Great myth busting, Alistair. Thank you. I could go on. There's loads of different things I could ask in that. But again, there's so much to talk about. I just want to ask you, are there any sort of recommendations or references that you've got? Are there any go-to podcasts or books or, you know, apps or anything that you think, okay, this is decent, this follows what I've studied, what I've learned, how I've practiced my work? So
1: what I rely upon a lot of the times is the British Dietetics Association. Uh, website because what they have is they have a section called Food Facts, and these are they are documents and they're not big documents. They're literally normally a page or two, and they cover a very specific topic. They have infographics, they have really layman's terms resources that can be printed off or you can just view on a web page and you know the bda the british dietetic association they pride themselves on being the leaders in that area and so they are always a fantastic place to start otherwise if you have specific you know diseases that you want to look up on a lot of disease groups like celiac uk for example they will have a webinar area on their website, which is available to the public. You know, I'm trying to think of other places that have webinars. We tend to like you to get the resources from us because we try to get trusted, evidence-based ones and avoid you getting misinformed by all the stuff that's out there. I'm always happy to provide a list of, based on the things that we talked about today, I can give you maybe a good list of websites that are reliable and evidence-based for those particular subjects
0: and if people want to find you how do they find you Alistair
1: if people want to find me at the moment um I'm just around on Instagram with ideas to increase what I'm doing based on what happens to me over the next few weeks but um my handle or should I say my Insta uh, at is Alistair Lynn. So that's A-L-A-S- t-a-i-r-l-y-n-n for one word i'll put um, it in the
0: show notes as well that'll be great
1: it goes through my journey but it also occasionally has a post that's very nutrition based and one that i'm planning to do in the next few days actually is about semaglutide i don't know if you've heard about semaglutide which is a weight loss injection that has been everyone's talking
0: about that Yeah, Yeah, which is coming out. I was going to ask you about that actually, but when this plays out, you will have already done that post so people can look back on it.
1: You know, I'm not going to go into it because I will do in the post. It's a worry because giving that much power in terms of control over some pretty important hormones that are working in the body and giving that power in a syringe to people that can just go and buy it from a pharmacist or order it online. It's a bit of a terrifying reality to healthcare professionals because we probably will be the ones picking up the pieces afterwards. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Oh dear, some sad facts out there about how people are, again, trying to lose weight. It's such a huge industry. Mm -hmm. It's been so great to chat to you, Alistair. I mean, there is so much more I could ask. It's fascinating. Yeah, I just, I really appreciate your time today.
1: That's
0: absolutely fine. It's what we do. We're a community. So thank you, Alistair. I really enjoyed our chat. It was very interesting and informative. And I think that you obviously able to apply a lot of what you've learned to your own lifestyle now that you yourself are dealing with cancer. Yeah, I just thought there was a lot of interesting information there that you shared so thank you and I hope my listeners find that useful which I'm sure they will I'll put in the show notes more information about the BDA the British Dietetics Association and also how you can find Alistair on Instagram thanks again for listening this week guys and I'll see you next week take care